Well, this morning we come to the end of our short midwinter series in which we're looking at four stories from the Old Testament, each of which involves Old Testament saints, the four patriarchs, exercising faith. Each of these stories looks forward to the work of Christ, as we've seen. And before we get uh, beyond our series, I'd like to thank you for the time that you've given me to spend in these passages. I've really enjoyed uh, this series and been terribly convicted by these passages, as you would hope that uh, I would be. So I I thank you for that. Uh, We're in Genesis 37 this morning. I'd encourage you to find that chapter in your Bibles. Uh, We've been... Looking, as I said, at the four patriarchs, we saw in our first couple of messages, Abraham. He met the Lord in chapter 12 of Genesis. God promised him a land, a seed, a blessing. Abraham responded in faith, but he struggled with doubt. Uh, At the same time, he also grew. And we see that throughout the, the account. Jacob wrestled with God. And just as he strived with everybody else in his life, he he fought with the Lord at times. And he finally understood last week in our message, we saw this, that God is the source of blessing. And this blessing is received by faith and not extracted by self-effort. Today we come in this chapter to Jacob's sons, Joseph in particular. And something interesting happens as we get toward the the later part of the book of Genesis. You know, the creation account, as important as it is, only occupies about 3% of the book of Genesis. Abraham, as foundational as he is, uh, his account only occupies about 21% of the book of Genesis. Jacob, pretty important guy too, his account only occupies about 23% of the book of Genesis. When we come to Joseph, though, his account, which starts here in chapter 37, occupies 30% of the book of Genesis. So almost a third of the book of Genesis is, is given to describing God's work in Joseph's life. And as we get toward these latter chapters... Uh, We're we're getting into a a section that would have felt more contemporary for the first readers of Genesis under Moses. They're going to now recognize uh, names and and places, and certainly the the sons of Jacob were the, 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 the heads or the fathers of their particular tribes. And the whole thing would have a much more contemporary feel for them. It's also very important to, to notice here that these chapters have, well, what might be kind of an ordinary feel when it comes to the way that God works with them. Remember, when God talked to Abraham, uh, he appeared at one point like a bolt of lightning, a theophany. That, that was pretty outstanding when God dealt with Abraham that way. Last week we saw Jacob wrestling with a man that he concludes is is God. That was was pretty extraordinary. Uh, Joseph, though, is going to go through a lot of trouble, and and he's going to doubtless be asking, where is God in the midst of these circumstances? How is he going to appear to me? 
And we'll get some answers to that in our message today. We have a challenge in chapter 37, uh, that being the great length of the passage. Last week we had, a, we had only 11 verses. That was kind of nice. Uh, today we have a, a great many more verses. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to that challenge by reading this in three sections. So I'll read the first section and then we'll talk about it and we'll go on to the second section. And in that way we'll, we'll break it up a little bit so that we don't get lost. Uh, we'll start with the first section in verse 1. Read down to verse 11. Would you follow along as I read? Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed going to reign over us, or are you indeed going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the stars, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. We learn in this first section that God's plan of redemption for Joseph and his family was carried out through family brokenness. Uh, Jacob lived in the land of promise. And we're told here that these are the generations of Jacob. This is one of the way that Genesis is divided up. And when you see that you're in the generations of someone, usually you've already heard their account, and now you're dealing with the descendants of that person. So we're, we're about to learn about the descendants of, of uh, Jacob. And there's a very important point in the background of this uh, of this section. Uh, God knows this. Um, we know it. The first readers of Genesis know it. And, and here's, the, here's the important point. There's about to be a severe famine. And, and everything, man, woman, beast, anybody who isn't provided for is going to die. That's about to happen as we enter this chapter. So verse 3, Joseph brings his father a bad report regarding his brothers. This is the event that starts off the whole chain of events. And some commentators here suggest that the bad report is actually a flawed report. 
And that's because the word can be translated slander or defamation. And it's the same word that's used in Numbers 13 when you remember the spies brought a corrupt report back uh, about the land. Uh, I don't think that's quite the case. There's a little suffix on the end of this word that indicates that the report itself is about the brothers' deeds. Their deeds uh, are bad, and of course we don't have any trouble knowing that these guys were not stellar characters and they were up to bad things all the time. At the same time, though, the word is often translated whisper. And, And I think that at the very least, Joseph is being a tattletale here. He's exercising his uh, privileged position to kind of come to his father and tell while the truth, maybe tell it in a way that elevates himself uh, a little bit. And then verses 4 and 5, and verses 3 as well, uh, we get a little bit of a background here that helps us understand why this is so significant. Jacob, the father had made Joseph the emotional center of his life. And we're told that it's because Joseph was the son of his old age. That was true. But we also know that Joseph was the oldest son of his favorite wife, Rachel. And it appears here that Jacob is repeating the errors of his own father, who, remember, had favored Esau over him. And Jacob had grown up craving the blessing of his father, striving for it. And in the end, he was blessed by God. But here he goes, while saved, uh, carrying on that family brokenness in favoring one son uh, over another. The brother's um, response to this was that they hated him. And they couldn't speak peacefully to him. And they especially hated this coat that Joseph had, uh, Jacob had given to Joseph. It was a, a long-sleeved garment, an outer tunic. Uh, was it many-colored? Maybe. Uh, the idea here is that it's ornamental, and it would have indicated that Joseph was to receive the inheritance. And you can imagine, with all those brothers being older than him, especially Reuben, that he would have not been appreciated, uh, having been chosen to receive the inheritance. There's a little refrain here that goes like this. They, the brothers, added still to hate him. That's literally what it says. Each little event that comes along here, it added still to their hatred. All right? They're like a pressure cooker or a volcano and the pressure is building and something really bad is about to happen in this family. And, and Joseph contributes to this brokenness as well, I believe. You know, I I grew up hearing, and and was even taught this in school, that Joseph is the only character in the Bible uh, outside of the Lord himself who has no recorded sin. And I'm not sure about that, actually. Uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, was a prodigal. A black sheep. He was the one who went out and did things to to people. Uh, I think Joseph is likewise a sinner here, but maybe his sin is more like Job's. Remember, Job was the guy who was righteous before the Lord, but at the bottom of his character, there was a little sediment of pride. 
And God, through the events of Job's life, stirred that pride up. And I, I think we're seeing that here in this early chapter of Joseph's account, that he's proud of his privileged position, and God is going to need to refine Joseph just the way he refines the rest of the family. So we come to the dream, the first one, verse 5. It's the dream of the sheaves, and this agricultural image probably had something to do with the, uh, the famine that was about to come and the way that God would provide for the family through Joseph. And it's interesting here that God is revealing his plan symbolically. Earlier on with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God would speak to them and give them particular things to do. Here he's giving Joseph a symbol that could be understood by anybody. So the brothers, they get it. There's no, there's, there's no confusion here about what God is doing. And later on, when God gives Pharaoh dreams and Joseph interprets them, those are also symbols that could even be understood by the Egyptians who didn't know God. And the brothers respond to this first dream by saying, Are you indeed going to reign over us? Are you indeed going to rule over us? Uh, well, uh, yes is uh, what Joseph says. And then he has another dream. This is even more intense. The sun, the moon, and 11 stars come and they they bow down to Joseph. And now the intensity is really building. And and what's what's significant here is that in this dream, even his parents are going to bow down to him. I spoke a couple of weeks ago with a, uh, a missionary who works in an Asian culture, an Eastern culture, and uh, we talked about how people small talk. You know, in our, in our culture, if you see somebody that you haven't seen for about a week, you might say something like, um, how's work? Ah, you know, it's going okay. How's, how are the kids? Yeah, they're doing all right. What, you, what you doing? What, what are your plans for the weekend? Oh, I don't know. We're going to watch TV, something like that. You know, we, we small talk about the, the small deeds of our lives. What my missionary friend told me is that in Eastern cultures, it's quite typical for two people to meet and ask, how are your parents? Interesting, right? Age and parents are much more esteemed in other parts of the world than they are in our culture. And so for Joseph to suggest here that even his parents would bow down to him would have been quite outrageous. And his father responds, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Joseph, uh, Jacob has dealt with God before, so he rebukes his son, probably for his pride. Um, but at the same time, he's going to wait and see and remember to see how this works out. We learn in this first section what we already know, and that is that patterns of sin often run in families. If you think about your family, it's almost certainly true. Uh, It's certainly true in my family. Uh, We are Kansas wheat people in my family. And my, um, let's see if I can do this, my great-great-grandfather came over from West Prussia and settled the land in the 1870s and the 1880s. He had a young wife and some children. She died in childbirth, and he married again, had a second set of children. My great-grandfather was from that first set of children. 
And uh, as time went on, my great-great-grandmother showed favoritism to to her own children. She'd kind of wait for the first set of children to leave, and then she'd have a little party. And this grew worse and worse over time. And my great-grandfather began to really resent that favoritism, and he took it out by making his kids work hard on the farm. And my grandfather was one of his kids, and he was made to work hard on the farm. He didn't get to go to college. He had to stay home on the farm. His younger brother got to go to college and eventually became the president of Grace Bible Institute, where he was replaced by Robert Benton, who had a little son named Stephen, whom you know. So there's a family connection there. But meanwhile, back on the farm, he had to work, and he grew angry. And he took it out on his kids. And they took it out on their kids. And and today, we're into the fifth or sixth generation. And that generational sin, I don't think it's the active curse of God. It's the result of those patterns of sin going on in the family. And doubtless, you have something like that going on in your family uh, as well. And we see it here in the covenant family in Genesis. Second section, uh, verse 12 down to verse 28. I'll read quickly and we'll, we'll uh, make some uh, big, op- big picture observations here. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will happen of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, ball, myrrh, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judas said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. We see here that God's plan of redemption for Joseph and his family was carried out through the plans of sinners. Verses 12 through 14, Jacob sends Joseph to look for his brothers, this might have been a, a follow-up to the, the previous report. It's interesting that Joseph starts out here not with his brothers, but with Jacob. Jacob sends him out to see what they're up to. 
And, and we're told here that Joseph went uh, obediently. Verses 15 to 17, we have this account of Joseph wandering in the fields here looking for his brothers. And we're told that, his, that he went first to Shechem. Now this would have been a very foolish place for his brothers to graze the sheep because a couple of chapters ago, you remember uh, Levi and Simeon carried out a massacre in Shechem. So it's possible here that they knew Joseph were coming to would come to look for them and they wanted him to walk into a trap. And he obviously doesn't know where he is because he's wandering around and he meets this man and we have this exchange and, and, and I think we're given this exchange to show that his brothers weren't where they were supposed to be. They were up at Dothan, 12 miles to the north, so now Joseph heads up to Dothan. And his brothers see him coming, now in verse 12, and they begin to conspire against him. They said, literally, man to man, here comes the, literally, master dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's dump him into one of the pits. Let's say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what will become of his dreams. They hate God's work in his life. Then we have a little subplot here. Reuben, who would be the oldest son of Leah, the, uh, the, the, the older of the, the first of Jacob's wives, double-crosses the brothers. And it's possible that he does this. In fact, we're told he did this uh, to try to, uh, well, impress his father Jacob. And the reason probably was that a couple of chapters ago, again, uh, he had defiled one of his father's concubines out of complete disrespect for his father. And so now, perhaps, if he suddenly produces Joseph later on, he can get back in his father's good graces. All sorts of brokenness going on here. Verse 23 to verse 28, the brothers act. They see him coming in this robe. They, they strip his robe. The word is very descriptive. They, they stripped his robe off of him. They threw him into a pit. This word throw is a special word that, that talks about heaving a dead body or has been used that way. And then in chapter, well, here we don't see it, but in chapter 42 we do see it. Joseph screamed. And he's, he's in the bottom of this waterless cistern and he's screaming for help, but there's nobody around but his brothers. And then we're told that they sat down to eat, just like the ravenous animals that they're going to blame for this event. Then Judah, another of the brothers, has an idea. He says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our own brother and is in our own flesh. Notice the situational ethics here. He's gone along with this, but now let's not kill him. After all, he is our brother. Let's just sell him. This is a very broken group of men. And we can imagine Joseph here as he's being sold and carted down to Egypt asking the question, where is God? Joseph probably thought about the great experiences of his great-grandfather Abraham and and his father Jacob and his great-grandfather Isaac, thought about how God had appeared to them in in these astounding ways. And and he probably wanted to know, is, is God waiting for some people to get it together? 
Or is he working through these circumstances, but where is he? Last section, beginning in verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. We learn in this last section that God's plan of redemption for Joseph and his family was carried out through unresolved grief. Uh, Reuben returns, first of all, to the pit. He realizes that he's been double-crossed. And then the brothers slaughter a goat, dip the tunic into some blood, and they send it to Jacob, saying, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Don't forget who you're dealing with here. Remember what Jacob did when he was younger? Where he, he, had, he had, first of all, slaughtered a goat and then gone to his father and said, Identify me. Am I your older son, Esau? And doubtless Jacob thought about this and realized, My sins have come back to haunt me here. And he weeps inconsolably. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus their father wept for him. You know, at the end of Genesis, there is resolution here. Uh, Jacob finds Joseph again. And he gets to bless his grandchildren. But he goes for years believing that Joseph is dead. There is no resolution to his grief, and yet God is working. And sometimes our grief seems so senseless in the moment, doesn't it? And it might take years to see what God is doing if we see that at all. God is working through unresolved grief. Well, let's talk a little bit about the significance of the the passage, and then we'll talk about the the application and and be done. Verse 36, look at that verse again. It's a significant one. This is the transition to the rest of the Joseph account. We're told that Joseph is sold to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. And in chapter 41, Joseph is going to begin to bring glory to the true God by interpreting dreams for Pharaoh. And he does it a little bit differently than he interpreted the original dreams. Uh, He's going to say to Pharaoh, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. 
He's going to give glory to God for what he's doing. I think we're seeing character development there in Joseph's life. And, and as you know, a great famine comes, and God reveals this to Joseph or to Pharaoh. Joseph interprets those dreams, and a great famine does come. And Joseph is raised to a position of authority in Egypt, something like a prime minister. And then we have in chapter 41 this telling sentence, All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe all over the earth. And his brothers come to him and his family is saved. Now here's the significance of the circumstances of everything we've been looking at. If Joseph doesn't get down to Egypt to become prime minister, everybody's dead. If Joseph doesn't get thrown into the pit, everybody's dead. If Joseph doesn't obey his father to go looking for his brothers, everybody's dead. God was working through the events of Joseph's life, not just in spite of them. And in fact, we have this verse at the end of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20, which functions like an anchor for the whole Joseph account. Uh, There's resolution here. Joseph has met his brothers. They know who he is. This is what Joseph says, looking back on everything we've been reading about. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as are today. God not only ordained the end of salvation in the covenant family, He ordained the means as well. And as we think about the Joseph story that we've just read, uh, we need to realize that Joseph also points us to somebody else. There was once another son who really, truly lived an impeccable life. And he was the favorite of his father. And one day he was obedient to go looking for his brothers, and he found them in the wrong place. And they hated him, and they stripped him of his garments, and they killed him, and he went down to the pit of death. But God raised him, and he went on ahead of us as the firstborn from among the dead. If Jesus doesn't die and go down to the pit for us, everybody's dead. See the significance? God ordained not just the end of our salvation, but the means as well. A lot of verses come to mind here. Hebrews 2.9 is a favorite. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste Death for everyone. God not only ordains the end, he ordains the means. The cross of Christ was no accident. And it's interesting to me, as we look at how God's purpose works out in Joseph's story, that God never turns up like a bolt of lightning. But he's there, and he's working through, not in spite of the details of Joseph's life, just as he did in the life of our Lord. Let's think now about the application 
of this story. Uh, there was an obvious application for Israel. These would be the, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. Uh, they needed to remember as they prepared to cross into the land of promise, that the whole reason they had been removed to Egypt involved God's plan for their redemption. Think back to our first message in Genesis 15. Remember what God told Abraham? He said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. If you're among the first readers or hearers of Genesis under Moses, uh, you're going to say, that's us. Now we know why that happened, and if everything in the story didn't work out exactly as it did, we're dead. And the same God who saved us by taking us to Egypt will bring us back to the land. We need to trust him. Uh, For those of us on this side of the cross, New Testament uh, believers in Jesus, uh, we need to remember, and this is really the main, the main idea of the message, God's sovereign plan for me will be accomplished in Christ through the circumstances of my life. God is involved in the, the, the events, even the details of my life. And this is true for heart-rending things as well as for trivial things. Uh, my wife has, in, in her extended family, uh, a relation, a couple that experienced a, a great loss. It was a, a, a mid-trimester miscarriage, very heart-rending. And uh, her uh, relation said to her, well, it just wasn't meant to be. And my, my sweet wife, and she had emotional permission to say this, responded instinctively, oh, but it was meant. To be. God is working through the circumstances of your life, not in, in spite of them. It wasn't an accident. It's also true for trivial things that take up brain power in our lives. Uh, back in uh, November, uh, we had some visitors to our garage in the wee hours of the night, and they helped us clean it out. Um, they took a couple of Bikes. Uh, one of them had a bike trailer attached to it. And before they rode off through the snow, uh, they filled the trailer full of all sorts of random things so that, you know, I'm still looking like, where is that extension cord, that kind of thing. I'm still finding things that aren't there anymore. Uh, they took about a dozen quarts of AMS oil. Uh, the only good thing was that they took my used oil as well. I didn't really know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> It's not my problem anymore. I trust they'll uh, dispose of it properly. Um, you know, I lost a little sleep over that. It feels We feel violated when we get robbed. But at the same time, we had to realize that most of those things they took were things that other people had shared with us, including some of you. And we got to enjoy those things for a while. And we still have you. And nobody got hurt. And, you know, maybe we were getting attached to some things. We had to kind of think through this redemptively. And we, we realized that, yes, God is working through that rather trivial event, not in spite of it. 
One more, one final word about bloodlines and families here. Uh, We see a pattern of sin running in this family. You know, God gives us a new bloodline. He he can do this in our families. All the people I, I shared in my story were people who professed Christ, and yet there was sin running in the family. And, and what God does in Christ is that he gives us a new bloodline. We can start over. Just because something is the, is the way it is doesn't mean it has to be that way. God doesn't just change individuals. He changes families as well. So as we, uh, as we carry this passage around with us, I, I'd encourage you to talk to the Lord. Ask him to open your eyes. Uh, to help you be sensitive to what he's doing in your life and your family through your circumstances. Uh, maybe we don't understand everything right away as Joseph didn't. Uh, but if we're in Christ, he'll accomplish his purpose for our lives. Father, we come to you and we are thankful for this account that you leave to us that is so instructive about the way that you have worked with the Old Testament saints. And we thank you for Jesus, we thank you for his work in our lives, and we thank you that through the circumstances of our lives, we can trust you. Uh, May it be so evermore. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.